Chapter 10 of The Glory of the Conquered. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA. The Glory of the Conquered by Susan Glassbell. Chapter 10 Carl in His Laboratory. One of their favorite speculations, as the days went on, was as to whether anyone had ever been so happy before. They argued it from all sides, in a purely unprejudiced and dispassionate manner, and always arrived at the conclusion that, of course, no one ever had. Because, Ernestine would say, no one ever had so many reasons for being happy. And if they had, he would respond, they would have said something about it. Ernestine worked that winter as she had never worked before. That first day had not been a deceptive one. She had done some of the things which something within her heart assured her that day she could do. The best thing she had done she sent to Laplace, as he had asked her to. It's considered rather superior to disdain the salon, she said to Carl, the day they packed the canvas. But Paris seems the only way to proving to Americans that good can come out of America. She heard from Laplace that the picture would be hung. His brief comment had been that America could not be so bad as was sometimes said. She was eager now to hear more about it. She would surely have a letter very soon. And she and Carl were so happy. It had been such a glorious, wholesome, splendidly worthwhile winter. It was one afternoon in early spring that over in the laboratory, John Beeson and Professor Hastings were talking of Dr. Huber's. But that isn't all of it, said Hastings in the midst of the discussion. This fanaticism for veracity Huxley talks about isn't all of it by any means. Any of us can get together a lot of facts. It takes the big man to know what the facts mean. Somebody said that truth was the soul of facts, said Beeson, in the uncertain way he talked of anything outside tabulated knowledge. But I suppose it's just one of those things people say. Yes, but is it? Isn't it true? Why is Huber's greater than the rest of us? It isn't that he works harder. We all work. It isn't that he's more exact. We're all exact. Isn't it that very thing of having a genius for getting the soul out of his facts? That man looks a long way ahead smells truth away off, as it were. I tell you, Mr. Beeson, scientific training kills many men for research work. They're afraid to move more than inch by inch. They won't take any jumps. Now, Dr. Huber's jumps. I've seen him do it. Of course, after he's made his jump, he goes back and sees that there aren't any ditches in between. But he's not afraid of a leap in the dark. That's his peculiar gift. Most of us are not made for jumping. But that doesn't sound like the scientific method, said Beeson, brows knitted. I'll admit it wouldn't do for general practice, replied the older man, a twinkle in his eye. The spirit has to move you, or you wouldn't gain anything but a broken neck. Yes, but that thing of a spirit moving you, said Beeson, more sure of himself here, that does not belong in science at all. That is part of religion. And to a man like Dr. Huber's, very quietly and firmly, science is religion. Beeson pondered that a minute, 
They're entirely distinct, was his conclusion. So it seems to you, but I'm a year or two older than you are, Mr. Beeson, and the longer I live, the more firmly I believe that there is such a thing as an intuitive sense of truth. If there isn't, why is Dr. Hubers a greater man than I am? And with that he left him, smiling a little at how it had never occurred to Beeson to say anything polite. Beeson was, in truth, much perturbed. It was not pleasing to have the greatness of his idol explained on unscientific principles. He did not like that idea of the jumps. Jumping sounded unscientific. And what could be worse than to say of a man that he was not scientific? Preposterous to say the greatest things of science were achieved by unscientific methods. Today, Dr. Hubers had been all afternoon alone in his laboratory. Someone had brought him in some luncheon at noon, but since one o'clock the door had not opened, and now it was almost five. What was going on in there? Even Beeson had the imagination to wonder. Could he have seen he would not have been much enlightened? The man was sitting before a table, his arms reaching out in front of him, some tubes, his microscope, other things he had been working with within reach, but unheeded now, for he was not seeing now the detail, the immediate. This was not one of those moments of advancing step by step. The light in those eyes of wonderful sight was the light from a farther distance. A way had opened ahead. Far out, across dim places, he could see it now. The afternoon had been a momentous one. He had taken a step leading to a greater height, and with the greater height came a wider vision. A few of those minutes, such as he was living, now fires a man for months, yes, years, of work. Ahead were days when the fires of inspiration would be in abeyance, when the work would be only a working of step-by-step -step detail. Some would call it drudgery. But it is in these moments of inspiration man qualifies for the fight. In the hours of working onward toward the light, he may grow very weary, but he can never forget that one day, for just a moment, the light opened to him. Moments such as Carl Huber's was living now mark the great men from the small. And his glowing moment was more than a promise. It was also a reward. It was spring now, and all through the winter he had worked hard. He had come back in the fall, determining in the gratitude of his great happiness to do the best work of his life. He pulled his microscope over in front of him and looked over it after the manner of one dreaming. How many days had he come to it eager to note the slightest significance in its variations of color? For the staining of the slides made color count in his work almost as it did in Ernestine's. Only to be met with the non-essential, more of the husk and no sight of the kernel. He smiled a little to think what a bulky and stupid volume it would make were he to write down all he had done. If each hope, each possibility, each experiment and verification were to be put down, he could quite rival in bulk a government report. And if added to that should be a report of the cases he had watched, the operations he had attended, the attempts at getting living matter and of working with dead, how large and how useless that volume would be were it to contain it all. He had done days and days of useless work to get the slightest thing that was significant. Only the week before, Ernestine had laughingly read him an article one of the popular magazines printed on cancer research. 
The whole thing is becoming a farce, so said the popular magazine. Every once in a while, some man issues a report saying the germ is in sight. Then another man appears with a still more learned report saying it is not a germ at all. All doing different things, and all sure they are on the right track. Meanwhile, the disease is on the increase, surgery cannot meet it satisfactorily, and while laboratories pursue the peaceful tenor of their way, men and women are dying hard deaths, which no one seems able to stay. Truly, the man behind the microscope is a very slow man, the article had concluded. No doubt that seemed true. He could see the writer's point of view well enough. The things the man behind the microscope did accomplish sounded so very easy that the onlooker could give only indolence and stupidity as the reason for not accomplishing a great deal more. And even from his own point of view, with his own knowledge of all the facts in the case, he had no doubt that once done, it would sound so easy that he would stand amazed to think it had not been done before. Let the unknown become the known, and even the trained worker cannot look upon it as other than a matter of course. It was so easy now to meet diphtheria. Strange they had let so many children die of it. It was so very easy, now, to give a man an anesthetic. Fearful how they had let a man suffer through every stroke of the knife, or die for need of it. Should he blame the man outside for looking at it that way, when even to him things accomplished took on that matter-of-course aspect? He began putting away his things. It was Ernestine's birthday, and he had promised to be home early, for they were going to the theater. It will be like all the rest, he mused. Once done, it will seem so easy that we will wonder why it was not done long before. Again, the fire leaped high within him. To do it. Perhaps, after all, he did see it too complexly. He must not let the husk dull his eye to the colonel. A man building a beautiful tower must erect a scaffold. But the scaffolding should not make him forget the tower. Some way in this last hour, his mind had seemed to clear. His immense amount of useless work was not hanging about his neck like a millstone. Something had cut that away. He was free from all of it. He could feel within himself that his approach to his problem was better than it had been before. Perhaps he had made the mistake of the others of looking at it as something fearfully complex, something it would be the hardest thing in the world for any man to do. It all looked more simple now. It was as if muscles strained to the point of tenseness had relaxed. And in an easy and natural way, he foresaw victory as a logical part of his work. He was happy tonight, light-hearted. The windows of the laboratory were open to the soft air of that glorious day of early spring. And his spirit was open too, open to the soul of the world, taking unto itself the sweet and simple spirit of the men who had done the greatest things. From his window, he could see one of the tennis courts. Some of the students were playing. Good, he exclaimed enthusiastically to himself, as he watched a return that had looked impossible. He was glad they were playing tennis. Why shouldn't they? Professor Hastings heard him whistling softly to himself, a German love song, as he walked through the big laboratory, and catching a glimpse of the younger man's face, he nodded his head and smiled. It had been a good afternoon. That was plain. Now, let there be more afternoons like this. And then, to think it should be done right here under his very eyes.
Was not that joy enough for any man? On the steps of the building, Carl stopped suddenly, put his hand in his inner pocket, and drew out a small box. Yes, it was there all right, and a girl passing up the steps just then was amazed and much fluttered to think Dr. Hubers should be smiling so beautifully at her. In fact, Dr. Hubers did not know that the girl was passing. She had simply been in the direction of his smile, and he was smiling because it was Ernestine's birthday and because he had so beautiful a present for her. He walked along very fast. He could scarcely wait to see her face when he gave it to her. Too bad he had kept her waiting so long. End of chapter 10